Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Brian Harding was a career cop who rose to the rank of Chief Superintendent. And what a career Brian has had. He's done the usual rounds of CIBs, Victoria Dock and the Fraud Squad before joining the Homicide Squad as a Detective Sergeant. He's been a superintendent of B District and Brian finished as a chief super before heading the very powerful Police Association of Victoria. But it's Brian's opinions that put him at odds with many old school police officers. He opposed capital punishment, tried to keep young offenders out of prison and looked for social rather than legal solutions to resolve conflict. Hi, Brian, and welcome to The Crime Couch. Thank you for your welcome. It's appreciated. My pleasure, Brian. Your father was a country policeman, wasn't he? Dad was stationed at Beach Forest, where I was born, and he moved uh, to the Mallee, to Witchyproof, from where my mother had this great wish to get to Kilmore for the benefits of Assumption College. And uh, this was Mum's Catholic origins pressing very heavily. So we, Dad transferred to Kilmore, where we spent our lives for most of our growing period. And um, Dad eventually finished at Cobram, where he had a heart attack and was boarded out. And then he went into hotels, particularly the John Curtin in... in um, uh, Carlton, which had a, a very fortunate impact on me with all the unionists that I met and people like Hawke and uh, similar types. Brian, your father's influence, is that why you joined the job? I think partially it was. It, um, he gave some clarifying edges to my decision, but my first instinct was to be a journalist and um, I worked at the Shepparton News briefly uh, with the LA Provincial Newspaper Group at Cobram and um, learned shorthand which was part of the craft and I got an invitation to join the Herald and uh, went for interviews there and was offered this cadetship and then I made up my mind, I tossed a coin and policing one. So you joined in the 1950s. I know a lot about Melbourne in those days because I've had the the fortune of writing Billy the Texan Longley's biography. How would you describe this era with the pushers or the gangs and all around the docks? How would you describe that era of criminals and police? Well, the 1950s, my first introduction to any type of uh, crime or criminology aspects was to be appointed to the shadowers where I worked for two, three years and that was just tailing crooks and it was the 
influence of the Bradshaws, the Twists, the Joey Turners, and uh, they were interesting types. And I learnt a lot about behaviour by that part of the of society. But uh, like all good things, that came to an end. I had a, a injury and no longer scaled giant buildings, and I, I went from there to a place where there were no criminals, and that was at St Kilda Road, which the only danger there was the prepubescent girls who were going to McDonald's High School or whatever it was called, and um, that was uh, a period of non-criminology until in um, 1955 I was appointed to St Kilda CIB where there was a new introduction to different types of criminals. Brian, you first met notorious crim Ronald Ryan, who of course was the last man to be subjected to the death penalty in 1956. You arrested him. How would you describe Ronald Ryan? Ronald Ryan was a person who was terribly difficult to dislike. And I met him in, he was living in impecunious circumstances in a, a flat in High Street, St Kilda, with three children, three little girls who were very sick. Uh, one room for the whole family. And uh, Ronald Ryan, my introduction to him was seeing his backside as he jumped out a window uh, from the second story. And I thought that was pretty brave. So I got to know his family and his circumstances from that brief experience, but none more so than when we were travelling to Warrnambool for uh, where he had to answer for some matters that I'd arrested him for, and I sat in the back seat of a police car all the way to Warrnambool, and we talked. So Ronald Ryan and I were always on speaking terms and um, whenever he would, later on, when he'd get into difficulties uh, with police through uh, acts of dishonesty, he'd ask to see me and I'd go to, invariably, to the City Watch House and he'd say to me, well, don't know preaching, just talk to me, and we talked. So I always had a strong feeling that he would reform but uh, by this stage also, I also learnt that he had, and his wife had told me this, that he had um, an acute gambling problem and that was what motivated most of his crime. Brian, it sounds like you had a real rapport with Ronald Ryan. Was he an ambitious crook and was he destined to end the way that he did? Um, he... Everything was to uh, assist him with his gambling and uh, he, he was doing, in the end, he was doing a couple of burglaries a week uh, and he never got beyond that stage. There was no uh, brutality in what he did. He was just a thief and he got to stages where he was selling uh, clothing which he'd broke, taken from factories, shoes, all that manner of thing, uh, outside the Port Melbourne football ground. Uh, 
So these things, it was he was bound for jail again, and uh, the first time he went to, when he got a, a small sentence and didn't have to serve it, we said he'll be all right. We were wrong. In 1965, Ronald Ryan escaped Pentridge with Peter John Walker and, of course, this was when prison officer George Hodson was shot and killed in this escape. Now, Ryan was found guilty of murder and hanged in Pentridge in February 1967. Now, I recall Billy Longley was in Pentridge then and he said that when Ryan was executed, he knew this because the pigeons resting on the trapdoor flew up in his beside the window past his cell window and that was how he knew that Ronald had been executed. You were invited to view the execution by him, weren't you? Was that a real surprise for you? It was. Uh, how it came about, the sheriff and the his deputy, Jim Mulvey, uh, whom I knew both socially and through working around the courts, said Ronald Ryan has issued a number of people he would like to be witnesses at his execution and you're one of them. What's your response? And it didn't take long to for me to uh, say that I, I could don't think I could witness such an event and uh, I apologised. Because I can remember speaking, I'm desperately trying to remember the, the journalist's name that witnessed his hanging and it destroyed his life. And I think anyone who was eyewitness to that hanging of, of Ronald Ryan, it certainly changed them forever. Is that, was that what you were left with? Absolutely. That is how it was. Uh, Mulvey and uh, O'Brien, the sheriff, were destroyed by it. The journalists of whom you just mentioned still talked about it years later. And people like the government pathologist and the government psychiatrist um, were also affected by it significantly. The only one who didn't seem to be touched by it was uh, Father John Brosnan, who was on a different spiritual level to all of us, I suppose. And he was ministered to Ryan for the final years or his final time in before his execution. Brian, you were in the CIBs and, as I mentioned, the Fraud Squad and the Homicide Squad. Now, corruption in policing isn't something that many members want to talk about or even admit, even if it's historical. But there is evidence of this, specifically um, with the backyard abortion racket. I know that the Homicide Squad, some members of the Homicide Squad in those days, actually protected some of the doctors and medical staff. Did you see or, or you know, did you have any evidence of corruption when you were in the job in, in the Homicide Squad? My first introduction to police corruption was at a significant level and that was in the homicide with the abortion uh, activities of that era where abortion was a capital crime. I was at home one Sunday morning looking after our kids while my wife went to Mass 
and I got a ring. I was the on-call officer at Malvern, and I received a telephone call to the effect that um, there's a man here who wants to see you or wants to speak to a detective. And I said, well, make him comfortable. I'll be down shortly. Uh, a few minutes later, the watch house keeper rang back and said, this man, uh, a man named Doyle, has taken his wife to be aborted and he's changed his mind and he wants the police to do something about it. Well, it, abortion then was a very contentious public issue, public policy issue, and uh, I knew that a, a minor official like Brian would be in real trouble if this wasn't attended to with immediacy. So I got the neighbours in to look after the children, taught them Malvern, and there I met uh, the the complainant person. So from there, uh, he gave me a, an address and a set of instructions, and the instructions were what to the woman to be aborted had to bring with them, which was a bottle of Dettol sanitary napkins and uh, most significantly and importantly, 50 pound, a lot of money in Melbourne of that era. So we went to uh, this place in uh, Knott Street, East Melbourne, 22 Knott Street, East Melbourne, not knowing that uh, what where this event was going to lead us. And uh, our, our only aim was at that stage was to rescue Mrs Murphy from the abortionist. So I knocked on the door and I had a, only one person in this posse with me as a, a policewoman who'd come in late to Malvern and uh, knocked on the door and it was opened by Matron Wallacott who was a, a matron of significance in that era and who worked for the abortions of a Sunday when they did their operations. So we were admitted and uh, the doctor brother who was sitting near a big open fire was bringing documents into the, into the fireplace and I asked the policewoman to look after that area and I went to a doorway off this major room and uh, opened the door and here was Mrs Doyle in stirrups uh, and the doctor at standing at her feet with an instrument poised. We were all shocked in a state of shock disbelief and uh, eventually I said to uh, the doctor uh, you could untether her now. Does she need any more treatment from you? No, that was all right. Uh, Mrs Doyle stepped down and then I saw a door leading off and I went straight to that, uh, through that door, and there were seven women waiting, similarly uh, equipped as Mrs Doyle, and that's where the the whole thing proceeded from. So what did you see in terms of corruption and in terms of the police being involved in that racket? The Homicide Squad seemed to have a standing brief on looking after things that arose from abortions. Uh, 
and it was primarily in its early stage it had things to do with backyard abortionists and uh, and there were a number of them practicing which they attended to appropriately but then doctors got into uh, the activity and things changed significantly and the doctors required protection and they got that from particularly some members of the homicide squad. So that was my first introduction to corruption on a high level when I was invited by them through the matters relating to the uh, Not Street East Melbourne visit to do certain things which was which would be rewarded if I followed their instructions. And the instructions were given by uh, Mr Ford and they were very precise, both as to what my future wealth would be. So Ford and I had an interest in thoroughbred racing and we met at um, Caulfield Racecourse and um, then he set out the things that would be required including my rewards and I was to be if this was carried out which meant altering my evidence concerning the the three we'd arrested at Not Street East Melbourne and uh, I said no thanks so he then rang my wife Lorna and uh, he put the same proposition to Lorna and Lorna said, no way, no, of course. So for a family of, at that stage, five children, it was, um, it, it was a matter that one had to properly, in a business sense, consider, mm. but it didn't take long. So I reported all this to my superiors and ten years later, there was a, a royal commission into abortion. Very different times and interesting times, Brian. How would you describe Detective Sergeant Jack Ford? Because he was also the nemesis of Billy the Texan Longley as well. Jack Ford, I had some connection with him through the Carlton Football Club. Jack Ford was my idol and um, when the Olympics Games were on he found a way that I could go to the MCC every time there was a a match through a friend of his who looked after a gate and I did and I and I was grateful for Ford for that and he was highly regarded within all circles within policing and all of this was uh, an immense shock to a naive young policeman. Because he had such a hard man reputation and uh, yet there's lots of tales about him, aren't there? There were lots of tales about Ford and particularly his association with Berman, Mrs Berman, and his brutality toward her, which emerged in the subsequent hearings when these matters were addressed finally and uh, a reluctant government set up an inquiry which ought to have been happened 
when the events occurred at Knott Street and the offers were made to me which were reported upon. Brian, in 1972 you were involved in the Faraday school kidnapping. Now this involved two men, Edwin John Ed Eastwood and Robert Clyde Boland, kidnapping teacher Mary Gibbs and her six pupils. What was your involvement in that matter, Brian? My squad was drawn into the Faraday kidnap on the Friday when the, when the matter first surfaced and my team was called in on the Saturday. I was then a detective senior sergeant at Homicide and um, we were told to go to Bendigo, which we did as a team. And... Um, we started from scratch. We knew that uh, the government was um, immediately informed, heavily involved, and Hamer acted brilliantly. He was very calm, collected and urbane as usual and very impressive. And Lindsay Thompson was the conduit to the government and the police. Um, we learned things fairly quickly and information was flowing. There was nothing like this that happened in Victoria that six children and their teacher would be abducted in such a manner. So when we were called in, my team, I instinctively believed the children had been murdered. And of course, this they may have had that in mind. There was a, a huge pit dug near where Mary Gibbs and uh, the children kicked their way out of a, a van. So that set in place a long train of... Um, uh, we had three trials which involved uh, Boland. His associate uh, rolled over earlier and even did a, a film reenactment and was going to give evidence against the principal, Boland, which he didn't. So the Boland trial, the we believe from people rigging the homicide squad, there were three trials. The first one, the jury was 11-1. The second trial, the jury was 11-1. And the third trial, which took a, a, a third of the time of the others, was over in a couple of weeks and Boland was found guilty. You've had some also some experience with the burglar Pavel Marinov in 1985. Of course, this was when he shot six men. The following year when Marinov was shot and killed by police, you actually delivered the death message, didn't you, Brian? I did to Mrs Marinov and her daughter and... Um, it was a pretty simple thing. I went with uh, Barry Ferrari, a detective senior sergeant at Oakley, and uh, we were armed, of course. Everyone was in arms after the six shootings. And um, we spoke to Mrs Marinoff, and the odds of Marinoff, by then we had a strong profile of him, was that uh, there would be no way he'd be at home, so it was comfortable to visit. 
and uh, they were very cooperative. The uh, stepdaughter, she's a stepdaughter to Marinoff, identified the body, and did uh, and looked after her mother, uh, as one would expect. Brian, you became a superintendent and then a chief super, as my father often says, a role that no or a rank that no longer exists. How do you recall your time in the job now? My time in the job was full of good intentions to reform. And um, this was why I sought to uh, abandon my chief superintendency and uh, succeed Tom Rippon at the Police Association. I had these plans and I wanted to introduce things like a research foundation and restructure the Police Association, which was moribund and was more a, a social organisation than a, a union with teeth. My view was that the operational police had been significantly let down by command and uh, the only way I could see around this was researching everything we did and because we had established that there was nothing, no difference between policing in the United States, Great Britain and the states of Australia, that we shouldn't, the National Federation, all the unions should be involved. And for uh, my estimate of the cost then was that it cost each member about a pot of beer a fortnight. So this started off... Uh, and it just projected everything was going to be successful. But the various commands around the place, they decided to set up their own research union, never having given it a thought to that stage. So a Mickey Mouse setup was established in South Australia and uh, it had one research person attached to it nothing to do with issues of police health, particularly the issues of stress. And uh, it produced a prototype baton and also uh, some thoughts on the speed of what a desirable speed of police cars. Brian, you were one of the first to say and to speak about the major factors in police stress that involved old-fashioned work practices, bullying, an unfair promotion system and failures to protect members' mental health. Is it true that your papers were marked not fit for promotion? The promotion system involved an interview with a promotions board and mine seemed to be... there was it had to be constituted by people of a higher rank. But I seem to always have uh, deputy commissioners and commissioners and a number of them, and one there was four of them. So we went through this charade for years, and I'd been elected to the Police Service Board, which was matter that related to police conditions of work, salaries, things, 
of that nature and also the appellate system which was appeals against promotion uh, not being promoted for transfers not sought and um, I had all these things that uh, had to be addressed so while I was on this board and of course every decision we made uh, with the county court judge who was chairman and a government member had to be accompanied by reasons for decision. So the gov- the police department rather had all these wonderful decisions and what it did point to generally was one of the principal stressors was management styles and practices. And we'd learnt after surveying over 4,000 policemen that they were pretty unhappy with their situation. So that was the reason why, in the end, I decided to resign my position, my elected position, on the service board and go back into the workforce, as it were. And um, that is what I did. And for years, my papers were marked, as you said, not to be promoted. Brian, you're now 91 years of age. You've written a book about your career. Why did you decide to become a scribe? I think uh, it may have lingered from my first position as a cadet reporter. My children from my second marriage, the three children, put to me quite constantly, what did you do in your working life? So that was a principal motivation. And then I think this thing, I had a consciousness of leaving something of the experiences I'd had in the expectation that it would help policing in the future. So this was all aided by COVID uh, when I went into retreat, as it were, and um, I I wrote it mainly through that, the last four years or thereabout, and just finished up now, and uh, hopefully it will be published in the next two months, within the next two months. Congratulations, Brian, because it's never easy to write that many, those many words, and you've done it when you're 91. I'd like to know, how do you reflect on your 40-plus years now in the job? I think I've been very lucky. I had real experiences. And I was assistant uh, with... Uh, I managed to retain all my official diaries, which, of course, don't indicate the realities of one's position and what one did, but it gave dates and places. I think I had a very happy police life generally, even with uh, little knockbacks and things, but it was rewarding and very helpful. More particularly the connectedness with uh, my old school and uh, the Morris brothers taught this uh, respect for women in the all women were cast in the light of the BVM, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And when I stepped into the streets at St Kilda, I met the ladies of the night. And this 
I treated them like ladies. I couldn't do otherwise because of my education. So the ladies of the night became uh, allies rather than opponents. And we learned more from the ladies and uh, they they had names for the detectives. There was uh, the funny little detective, FLD, Bob, who I won't go any further, Big Bob and Boy Brian. And Boy, I would be greeted by the ladies of the night, hey Boy, how are you? <laughs> Brian, what would your advice be to anyone thinking of joining the job and listening to this interview? Anybody considering joining the police force must first have a vocation to the call. If it's not a vocation, if it's treated merely as a job, there'll be suffering and there'll be no sense of purpose. Have a vocation, young man or a young woman, and it is a rewarding existence. And finally, Brian, you're 91, as I've said, What's next for you? What are you looking forward to? Publishing this book, having that uh, in in the public domain and just enjoying my friends and, and what I have left in my life. Well, Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure sitting with you today on The Crime Couch and, and thank you very much for sharing your wealth of experience with everyone today. Thank you, Rochelle, and you've been a, a generous questioner. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.